You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. This is part two of SpyCast's interview with intelligence legend Felix Rodriguez. I want to ask you now about a very successful operation. That's Bolivia in 1967. Um, you trained and led a team uh, to track down, now even more so, one of the most famous revolutionaries of all time. And unfortunately, he's more famous today because in the 1990s, every other college student had a picture of Che Guevara right. on their sweatshirt. Um, but you were sent down, you got intelligence that, that Che was operating in Bolivia, and you were sent down to train and lead a team uh, to chase down Che. And, and what I found interesting from reading your book about this was the way that you went about building dossiers about all the different rebel leaders. So this is, it's a classic intelligence technique, uh, but you, you really kind of hunkered down and made sure you really understood the people that Che was operating with. Right. Well, the reason why they selected us was because there was a prohibition from ambassador, um, U.S. Ambassador Henderson that no U.S. personnel could participate in areas of combat or danger because Vietnam was already taking place. There were American troops coming back in, in, the, in plastic bags, and they didn't want that to start happening from South America. So that's why they selected Cuba, because we were not U.S. citizens. So Larry Sternfield came to Miami, he interviewed like 18 of us or 16, and he selected two of us. Then I asked him why he selected me. You know, at the end of every interview, because we basically had the same training, he will ask us and say, well, if I select you, when will you be ready to be mobilized? Everybody will tell him, okay, I need a week or whatever, or five days or two days. My answer to him was, if I have time, I'll go to my house, I get my clothes, I say go back to my wife, I come back and we leave. If we don't have time for that, you give me the phone, I will call my wife now and tell her I have to leave. And if we don't have time for that, let's go, I'll give you her number, and you <laughs> call her and you tell her I had to leave. And I guess that impressed him to the point that he, I selected me out of the other 16 or 18 people. So we went to Bolivia. Uh, there were already about three Cubans in La Paz working with the Ministry of Interior, helping them in intelligence. Uh, and then the two of us, with one American who was our boss, we went to, uh, first of all, when we arrived in, in La Paz, we were taken to President Barrientos' home, personal home. He gave us ID card uh, for our uh, you know, support from the armed forces and the civilian, 
And then at 10 o'clock in the morning, we went to see General Alfredo Bando Candiga, the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, who gave us a similar ID card. And by the way, about two months ago, I donated those two cards for the CIA Museum, the original one. Mm -hmm. I just kept copies of it. And the ashes, the last ashes of shade that he smoked before he died. So uh, we started operating there and working. Uh, I remember reading when I was in Washington about the different guerrillas that were given to us. Uh, we were given the photograph that was painted by Ciro Bustos. We given the, the, the dossier from the, the Bray, what the Bray wrote about it. Uh, and then we learned, for, I knew, for example, from there that Paco Jose Castillo Chavez was one of the guerrillas who wanted to leave. Paco was a communist, but uh, he was never briefed that he was going to be a guerrilla. Actually, he was told by the, his, the people who recruited him he was going to be going to Cuba and the Soviet Union, and he was a communist. He, he loved that. And when he arrived to this area where he thought he was going to be putting a, in a small plane and flowing into the Uruguay, and from there uh, giving documentation to go to Cuba and the Soviet Union, he was given a rifle and told that he was in a guerrilla, and he was no guerrilla. So at the time that he was actually, by coincidence, captured and wounded, uh, he, didn't, he wasn't even carrying any weapon. He was carrying food and ammunition for the rest of the guerrilla of Juan Vitalio Acuña Nuño, Joaquin, who was the guerrilla that was decimated completely by a military unit of uh, Mario, Captain Mario Vargas. So I knew that Paco would be a, a tremendous prospect if we ever got a hold of him. So when he was captured and he was brought in alive to Valle Grande, I accompanied a Major um, Arnaldo Saucedo, the head of intelligence, and uh, when I went to see him and I started talking to him briefly, uh, the guy had a tremendous memory. He, he would be able to recite the meeting that took place eight months before and give you the address and give you the name of 16 people. I mean, he had a tremendous memory. So I went back to get the, uh, the army to give it up to us for, uh, for interrogation. At the time that I arrived at the headquarters in Valle Grande, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Selly was talking to... Um, General David Lafuente, the head of the army, and telling him this guy had known nothing. I already interrogated him. He was the order. We already told the press that he was badly wanted, I mean, to, to kill him. Uh, at the same time, I then spoke to the, uh, to the general and told him the, that I believe that his information would be very important. I also told him if the information we get from him you don't believe is important, I will never ask you from another prisoner. Now, I have met uh, General David Lafuente in a, in, a, in a meeting that we had at the training place at La Esperanza where the Special Forces were training the Special Battalion on a visit by General Robert Porter, the South, Southcom uh, commander. And he knew that our relationship with the Army, we had those ID cards from the President and the mm -hmm. Commander-in-Chief. So he did order this guy to give us the, the prisoners. So we took Paco to uh, Santa Cruz and he was able to give us uh, the actually how she will move, which was instrumental to verify when he was in the area. He right. told she will move in three groups, Vanguard, Center, Rear Guard. The Vanguard was a five or six guerrilla. He gave all the war name that they had from those people uh, one kilometer ahead of him. And then one kilometer behind was the Rear Guard with another five or six guerrilla. So in case there was an ambush from either way, she was protecting the middle. He, was, he could maneuver out of the ambush without being hurt. So later on, in late uh, September, when Lieutenant Eduardo Galindo Garteche was able to kill three guerrillas uh, near uh, Pucará and, and Higueras, uh, and we were commissioned to go there and pick up the bodies. Uh, and I arrived and I spoke to Lieutenant Galindo. He told me, my capitán, I had the rank of captain. Uh, he told me, my capitán, I saw the guerrilla in the distance. When I started preparing the ambush on top of the hill, they surprised me. So that, and then the three members that he killed was members of the Vanguard of Shea. One was Coco Peredo, the head of the Bolivian 
gorilla, the other one was uh, Mario Gutierrez Ardaya, a Bolivian doctor, and the other one was Miguel, uh, who actually was a Cuban captain, who later we learned was Manuel Hernández Osorio. Now, with these three bodies, uh, knowing who they were, knowing they was from Bangar or Shea, I was able to convince uh, Colonel Centeno Anaya, who was the commander of the A Division, that the Shea was in the area, definitely explaining what happened. And the battalion still had about two weeks to be operational. I mean, the basic training was completely finished. It was a matter of shooting, getting medal, diplomas, and all of that thing. So he did term, terminate the, the training short, and they mobilized the battalion, who actually were in operation on the 1st of October. And now what they use, they have four companies of uh, less than 200 men each. One company stayed in Valle Grande to maintain communication and support. We able to uh, feed them with uh, food and ammunition, etc. One company was commanded by Captain Lopez Leighton. He was deployed along the Rio Grande ravine so that the guerrilla will not move to the other area. Even though this battalion could operate anywhere in country, they had identified very closely with the 8th Division. And the other side was the, the 4th Division commanded by Colonel Requeteran. So another company was commanded by Celso Torrelli, who, Captain Celso Torrelli, who later became president of Bolivia, mm. and he was stationed with his unit in, in Higuera, where Che had last been seen, to be able to support if the searching company will find something. And the searching company was commanded by Captain Gary Prado. So they were deployed at that time, and on, this, on the 7th, who happens to be a, a Saturday, uh, we had, in, our, my friend especially had trained some intelligence team for the battalion who spoke the Quechua, the Aymara, and, and you know, the, the different dialect. And they had moved in civilian clothes ahead of the battalion to talk to the farmers. So he came back and one farmer told him he got a, uh, a place there that he was cultivating something and he saw the guerrillas in there in a place nobody was supposed to be called um, El Yuro, Quebrada del Yuro. So that evening, Gary Prado surrounded the Quebrada del Yuro with his close to 200 men and then on the 8th of October, who was uh, a Sunday, the firefight erupted, uh, um, a lot of kills from both sides. Che was wounded on the right side of the leg, and then he was captured trying to evade the, uh, <coughs> the encirclement with um, Willie Simon Cuba Sarabia, who was a Bolivian guerrilla. And uh, I was at that time, uh, being a Sunday, I was in, in Valle Grande installing some PRT-10 radios on the Bolivian Air Force combat plane, the 86, because they didn't have any compatible frequency with the ground troops. They operate in 100 and some megahertz in VHF, and the, and the unit operate in, in FM, which is about 50 megahertz, so they, they had no communication. So I borrowed three PRC teams from the Army. I installed one uh, in each plane so that they would be able to talk directly to the ground troops and be able to support them militarily. I already had terminated training, uh, setting up two, one was still, uh, one was still um, uh, not, not finished. That's when the head of intelligence came to me and said they had war from the operational area of Papa Cansado, which is a simple code for the head of the guerrilla being captured alive and wounded. Now, they didn't know whether it was really Che Guevara or whether it was Inti Peredo, Coco's brother, who turned out to be then the head of the Bo Bolivian guerrilla on the Bolivian side. So I flew in the back of one of the planes. Major Serrate, the head of operation, flew in the back of the other. We flew over the area, and they were able to verify that Papa Cansado was the foreigner, so we knew it was Che. And so you, you got the opportunity, and you were the last one to have the opportunity to talk to Che. Yes, then he when, when, when he came back, Centeno uh, sent Lieutenant Colonel Shelley in a helicopter, and he was dropping there to try to gather all of Che Guevara documentation so that people would not keep it as a souvenir. 
and to interrogate Che. And that evening that we celebrated at the hotel, I brought a couple of bottles of scotch that I have bought for an occasion like this, and I asked him if I could accompany him, and of course everybody wanted to go. And because of the altitude and the size of the helicopter, the helicopter could only take two people beside the pilot. But we had excellent relationships. So Colonel Centeno spoke to his officer and said, you know, he knew that they all wanted to go, but he also knew how much harm this guy had done to my country, to Captain Ramos' country. And if they don't mind, he will bring me with him. So on the following morning, we took off at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, a small helicopter piloted by Jaime Nino de Guzman, a Bolivian major, Air Force major. We landed next to the schoolhouse, and there was Gary Prado waiting there, uh, Major Ayoroa, the executive of the battalion, <coughs> Colonel Selly with all of Shea's documentation. And, uh, and that's, uh, we came into the room, and he started asking questions to Che, and Che would look at him and say nothing. He was on the floor, he was tied down, uh, arms and legs, and in front of him was the dead body of a couple of Cubans. One was Captain Oslo Pantoja, another Cuban officer. Then they left. I asked him to get all the documentation for my government to be photographed. So he asked Selis to give me the, uh, the pouch that uh, Che had. He had a, a big um, uh, book uh, diary. Of course, it was written in Spanish, but it was from Germany. He had some photographs for his family. He got a black mask uh, that he used for his asthma and some medicaments. He got family picture. He had some code book, numerical code book that was given to him by Red China. Uh, and also he had a little booklet signed by a real message that he received from Cuba. He could not transmit because Cuba sent purposely his transmitter broken. Mm -hmm. But he could receive a Radio Havana, Cuba. And it was signed by Ariel, that we saw it was Fidel. Later on, when he met Benigno, Colonel Ariel Arcon Ramirez in the, up in, the, in Paris, he told me, no, no, that Ariel was Juan Carretero, who was an intelligence officer in charge of Chess communication. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the historical importance of Che Guevara? Like what he meant to the overall Cuban revolution? Well, his popularity became later on, you know, by being called Che and being a foreigner, being Argentinian. When he went in training, uh, according to uh, Miguel Sanchez, the Korean who trained all of them, he was nobody. I mean, so they really, he was not in the top group of Castro's advisor uh, or operator when they went to Cuba. As time went by, because of the name Che and being an Argentinian, that's where he started being separated, you know, distinguish himself from, from the other groups. Um, my own feeling about him, definitely, he, all I have read in the past, uh, he, he was an assassin. He was a cold-blooded assassin. Uh, he enjoyed killing people. Uh, he would not mind uh, throwing the atomic bomb in the United States as long as he could achieve uh, socialism in this country, like he did say at the United Nations. And he had a tremendous sense of uh, hatred uh, for the enemy, and that's what he tried to even I think there is a booklet that you can find that they distributed in Angola to the soldiers, and they, he talked about being a killing machine and, and that they should be moved by hatred against the enemy and implacable. I mean, he was really strong on, on those feelings. So when, when I got there, you know, that's, that's the image that I had of him. Uh, I was looking forward, you know, to, to what's going to happen. Nevertheless, when I saw the man, the way he looked like, you know, it, it, it was an impact. Uh, the image that I had of this arrogant guy uh, going to the Soviet Union or, or, or China uh, in, in a covert coat, you know, and, and now to see what was in front of me, he looks like a beggar, you know, he was on the floor, his uh, clothes was in rag, dirty, uh, he, he didn't even have a pair of boots, he had a pair of uh, some kind of leather attached to his, uh, to his foot. 
Uh, he looked like a real beggar, you know. I, as a human being, I felt sorry for him. And it was a hell of a contrast to, to what I remember and what I was seeing in front of me. Yeah, I can imagine you went in, and this is the guy who helped Castro uh, kick you and all your friends and your family out of Cuba. And you're all excited about, you know, you find out they captured him, he's wounded, and you go in, and you see him on the floor. It's just different than what you were expecting. Absolutely. You write in your book about the meeting with Che, and at first uh, he wouldn't talk to anybody. Uh, and, and I found it interesting, and, and this is something I want to ask you about even more than this, about your treatment or your philosophy about treatment towards prisoners, towards people who others, certainly Latin American nations perhaps, may beat up prisoners, may, may be vis- physically violent toward them. And you even had an instance before this with Paco, who's the man that gave you a lot of the information right. about finding Che, where you treated a prisoner in a very different way than perhaps was the, the mentality at the time. And this is how you treated Che as well, and it really, right. it really was positive in the end. Can you talk a little bit about that philosophy that you had? Yeah, I found out that really treating them well and in humane ways. And of course, we had the logic and the reason on our side. It worked much better than trying to uh, harass them. Now, it's a different situation altogether. We had never faced before, like today, <coughs> fanatics like I, people. That's a different situation. I have to, to admit that that's a different situation. But, for example, the Viet Cong in Vietnam that I dealt with, uh, they were, I got to a point I got them to cooperate. Even though I got the help that most of my troops were former Viet Cong, and sometimes a lot of them have knowing the people that we have captured. But treating them well, with respect, with dignity, then I went into travel or explain to them what happened in my country, you know, the, to these people and, and, and to the different... Uh, and they, they, you know, it's, it's logic the way I was telling them, you know. They should have the opportunity of things, uh, and then everybody cannot be equal because you cannot expect two individuals, one working and one not working, to have the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that has logic to it, you know. So when you went through this process, uh, day after day, with them and talk to them, it do take a, a effect on them. And, and it, it was very effective in Vietnam, uh, which I, it wasn't torture, and it was just this tribe of treatment uh, that, that dealing with them and they will be very cooperative. But of course, I have to make that difference now. Now with those people, uh, you have never seen people like they did, you know, cutting the head, having a child, right. uh, shooting a, a man, burning them alive. That's a completely different ball game. So when, when you when you met Che for the first time, you were with another officer, and and Che refused to talk. But you, when you finally went back to have a conversation with him, you actually did have a a pretty lengthy conversation with Che before he was finally executed. Can you talk a little bit about that dialogue? Yeah, well, we went back uh, when we first, uh, finally, we, we got to, I think we already went through that mm-hmm. in there. When we finally started talking to each other, I went in and out of the room several times. But I still had not finished um, photographing the diary and also had to come out about 10 something in the morning to do a radio contact with Langley. Uh, I was carrying RS-48. Uh, which is a, a small uh, briefcase uh, transmitter and receiver in in, in telegraphy. And uh, I already had prepared the message and coded and everything, but I had a contact in the morning, so I had to interrupt my talking to him to go to the field outside, which I already had set up the, uh, the radio equipment, has its own battery and everything, and passed this message over to, uh, to Washington. And of course, from there, he went to La Paz. And I came back, you know, let's like say several times, and like we talk in generalities, whenever 
I went into a detail of something that was of tactical interest to us, he would look at me and say, you know, you know, I cannot answer that. But like I said, you know, I, I pinched him about Africa and the, the African being poor soldier, and I told him that his people had said that they had 10,000 guerrillas, to which he admitted then that indeed, you know, he was in Africa, and I said, well, if I had 10,000 guerrillas, it would be different, but you are right, they were very poor soldiers. And that was time that uh, I was this one time I remember that, that he was doing the talking and they just executed next to him uh, an inseto. An inseto is the guy who had been shot on one eye and brought in and he was still alive. And then, you know, while I was talking to him, somebody shot him on next room. That's where they had earlier killed uh, Willie, Simon Cuba Sarabia. And he stopped, he went like this with his head. I didn't say a word, he didn't say a word. And then he continued talking after that. Uh, like I said, we talk about the Cuban economy, Cuban economy, I think we went through that mm -hmm. already. The Cuban economy, and we, and, and we talk about uh, why he selected Bolivia. Uh, we went through all of these things. Uh, where, where did we let, left off? The well, I, I wanted to say, just the one last question I want to ask specifically about the conversation you had was how he came across about Fidel Castro. He would not talk about Fidel. I, I could see that he had a tremendous resentment about Castro, but he considered me being from the U.S. government after he asked me, you know, that I was not Bolivian. I told him indeed that I was uh, from the Brigade 256 and working for the United States government. You know, to him, I was a bigger enemy, you know, for his ideological stand. So he will not say anything good about Castro, but he will not say anything bad either, no. you know, because I was... I, th I thought maybe in his mind it was a bigger enemy to him than anything else because being connected what he called imperialist uh, United States. Because the, the conventional wisdom at the time was that Castro had basically uh, let Che down, had not supported Che's efforts in Castro Bolivia. had to. Castro had no choice. Che Guevara took the line of uh, Mao Zedong. Uh, as you know, the Soviet uh, hated the Chinese as much as they hated the United States. So, like I said, when, when he went sent, uh, to Africa, to uh, El Congo, Belga, uh, actually some of our people from their team operation went there with the two swift boats that were cut in half and operated in the Tanganyika River. He almost got killed in there. There were six of his boats and four were sunk and he escaped in two of them. Uh, when he went to Africa, all the weapons that he received came from Red China. The Soviet didn't give him nothing at all. He came on a boat from Red China, according to Benigno, when I spoke later on in, in Paris. And the like I said, when he was a, a, a total failure in Africa, he went to Prague. He didn't want to go back to Cuba. And he refused himself in Prague uh, in a house about an hour, or uh, less than an hour drive from, uh, from Prague in Czechoslovakia. And, and eventually they sent uh, Ramiro Valdez and Almeida to talk to him and convince him to go back to Cuba. They were going to give him all whatever he needs for another adventure in South America. That's the Bolivian adventure. Yeah. When you look at that adventure in Bolivia, you knew definitely that it was programmed to uh, to get rid of him. Uh, first of all, normally when you go on an operation like this, the most important thing is to keep communication with the base. And normally they give two or three transmitters to make sure that he does have communication with the base. Because they can fix anything in Cuba to, to transmit to him, but he, he, have, he doesn't have that ability when he's in the field. Well, instead of giving two or three transmitters, he got only one, and when it arrived, it was broken. <laughs> he would not even transmit one time with that radio. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is Renan Montero, who was an intelligence officer in La, in La Paz, who was assigned to support him. He was the one who actually received 
all of them, at the El Alto Airport and, and channelized his movement from there to committee. And as soon as that was done, all of them were inside country, he was recalled to Cuba with the pretext that his visa had expired, and we learned that he had the Bolivian citizenship. Uh, so he's the only one who could really help him in any situation because he had tremendous contacts uh, outside in logistics, and he was taken out of the picture by Castro. And then Mario Monge, who had met with Castro two months before, when they had a meeting uh, finally on the 31st of December of 66 in Camite, and they celebrated New Year together, uh, he was a total break up between the two of them, mm -hmm. to the point that Mario Monge told the, 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 his buddies from uh, uh, Bolivian origin who were there taken by the Peredos brother, and Raul Quispaya, he told them that if they stay with Che, they were expelled from the Communist Party. He was, he was not supporting that guerrilla. So as you can see, he was right. sent there definitely to be, to be killed. You, you've, you write in your book about the, the last moments uh, with Che. Uh, your, your mission was to try to keep him alive, but the Bolivians overruled that, and they decided to execute him almost on the spot. Uh, would you, it reads in your book that you, you were able to get beyond perhaps the, the earlier feelings about Che, the hatred about Che, and, and have a bit of respect toward him. Am I, am I overreading that, or did you have respect for Che in the end? Well, you have to have the respect in a way, the way he conducted himself before he died. But then at the same time, you recognize how cruel he was, what a criminal he was. Right. Are two different scenes, but he did conduct himself uh, well, you know, before he died. Instead of crying or asking for uh, for a pardon or whatever, you know, he did conduct himself at the end, and you have to respect that. Right. So there are two really interesting anecdotes or, or moments in history at that time. Is one is Che's watch. Can you talk a little bit about Che's watch? And, and well, at the beginning, I thought that I had his watch. When I arrived at the Ligueras, there was a soldier who had a GMT watch. They had all, all of these Rolex GMT in the area. And this guy who had a GMT watch with him, he told me that he took that from Shea. So I had a similar watch, but I had a different band. And my original band went bad, so I bought a better one, but it was not Rolex. It was another make. So I asked the guy for Rolex, who didn't want to give it to me. I said, no, no, I'm going to return it to you. I just want to go inside and check and make sure it doesn't have any microfilm inside the watch. So I took his watch, I exchanged the band, and I gave him my watch with his band, and I took his watch with my band. But then later on, as I went by, I learned, for example, that Gary Prado claims in his book, and there's no reason to, that he, he didn't do that, that when they brought Che to him, Che had two watches with him. Hmm. One that belonged to him, and the other one belonged to a Cuban who was, uh, who was killed, a Cuban who was killed, and um, he was holding the watch for the family. And the Che, according to Gary Prado, mark make a little mark on the on the on the Rolex that belonged to Che, which eventually, as history goes, that he sent that watch as a present to Fidel Castro hmm. later on. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Selish, who was dispatched to the area the same day and was left there with a helicopter to get all the documentation from Che, was wearing another GMT watch, and he was telling everybody that that was Che Guevara's watch. No, I honestly believe that the, the watch really was the one that Gary Prado had. And, uh, and you know, but there, there were like six, every single Cuban that went to Bolivia with Che had a GMT watch. Mm. So there were a lot of watches right. in the area, you know, and like I said, soldier kept one, Che, Gary Prado took two, 
uh, sell it, I got another one, and maybe somebody else have some other ones from so the So Chase is somewhere, maybe, yeah. okay. Um, and then of course, the most famous uh, historical artifact from that time period is the picture of Che right before he dies. And of course, the picture, the last picture of Che alive is you and Che standing next to each other. Right. It, it, that wasn't supposed to happen necessarily that way, was it? I mean, you kind of had to swindle. You know, the, I, I didn't even thought about it, which it was probably my mistake. I should have thought about taking a picture with him. But in my mind, I wasn't even thinking about that. And the only reason the picture was taken was that when the pilot came one of those times to bring food and ammunition, he came into my, in the room where I was talking to Che, and he had a, a, a Pentax camera from Major Saucedo, Arnaldo Saucedo, the head of intelligence. And he looked at me and said, Mi Capitan, Major Saucedo want a picture with the prisoner. That's when I addressed Che and said, do you mind? He said, no. So we took him out of the, uh, of the schoolhouse. Uh, I first I gave my, my camera to, uh, to the Major, and he took that picture. As a matter of fact, when he turned over the film in La Paz to the deputy, direct, uh, deputy uh, uh, station chief, because the, the head of the CIA station chief, John Tilton, was on vacation mm. in Washington at that time. Uh, when he turned the, the film to them, I had a bunch of film with all the diary inside. This one roll of film, undeveloped, had a little X that I marked. I said, look, there is a picture of me and Shea, which he is laughing. And the reason I said that when I gave it to him was because I put my hand around him just before the picture was taken. I said, Comandante, mira el pajarito. That's a saying in Cuba to the kid, you know, look at the little bird, you know, up here. And, uh, and he started laughing when I, when, when I said that, you know. I look at the camera, of course, he changed his expression when the picture was taken. It would be ridiculous that he would be laughing in a camera when he was caught and right. all of that. So uh, that's, that's the way. And then I took the camera of the major, and I really didn't know what was going to happen, but I suspected that they might kill him. And I thought, if, you know, if this guy had a picture of him alive and he starts showing it around, the government has said that he died in combat, it would be an embarrassment right. for the Bolivian government. So that's where I closed the lens and put high speed and the, the other picture never came out. Well, I mean, that, yeah, there's a picture, the one that finally came out, is him looking like he's at his, on his last leg. He looks dour, he looks sad. But you're saying right before that he was laughing because right. that's great. Seconds before that he was yeah. laughing. The colonel that you were with, uh, who brought you down to to meet and talk to Che, uh, was later killed in Paris um, right. by the Cubans as retribution for well, Che. They, 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 they claim uh, when he was assassinated, I think it was in 1975, he had become a general, and he was the ambassador of Bolivia to Paris. And um, they claimed, they left a paper claiming Che Guevara's commando. Now, later on, when I met Benigno, Colonel Dariel Aracón Ramirez, I met him in, in Paris. Uh, he told me, actually, that he was done by the La Guardia brother, were the one who organized the assassination of him and of uh, Colonel Quintanilla, who was the advisor to the Minister of Interior. And at the time, he was in Hamburg, Germany. He was the General Consul of Bolivia in Hamburg, Germany. And what uh, Tony de la Guardia did, who was working with this, the people in charge of assassination for the Castro regime uh, in Cuba and outside, what he did, he contracted some German terrorists to do that. The Castros, unfortunately, are still running Cuba. Uh, they, um, they probably still have uh, a, 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 uh, an inkling that you uh, are somebody that would be a great target to oh, yeah. take out. Are, are you worried at all about you continuing to be targeted by the Castros? Well, I'll tell you, I believe in destiny. When you're going to get it, you can hide under whatever, and you're going to have it. You know, I believe in destiny. 
And the reason I really believe in destiny was one incident. Well, I have several of them, but one specific that happened to me in Vietnam. When I was in Vietnam, and I, you know, I took a lot of risk in flying, you know, combat missions all the time that I was there, hundreds of missions for two and a half years. And uh, my helicopter weighed like 18 different times and went down five times. And then there was one specific incident that was nothing of danger about it. A uh, helicopter from the Army were supposed to pick me up in the echo pad of Benhua. That's what we have our CIA uh, group stationed there. To take me to Nave, this naval base south of Saigon, uh, where I was preparing in operation. So I went there to, you know, to get up intelligence and everything and then fly back. So the helicopter was supposed to pick me up at like uh, eight o 9 o'clock in the morning at that pad in Benhua, fly me to Nave. I think it was he had to make a stop in Saigon to drop some soldiers, you know, and back. The night before that to happen, we received a cable from Tainim Province. Now, we advised 11 different units. It's all in Region 3, which is 11 provinces around Saigon. And Tainim was one of them on the north uh, North, a little bit northwest of the of, of the uh, of Saigon, next to Cambodia, and the cable, according to the, when they deciphered the cable, uh, it said that there was an encounter with the enemy. There were uh, uh, several Viet Cong wounded, and it said that we had ten PRU killed. Now, whenever we got PRU killed as provincial reconnaissance unit, we pay the widow one year salary, you know, to, and pay the you know the expenses for the. Uh, uh, burial and all of that. And my boss, Don Greg, told me, look, forget about that, you know, going to Nabe, you can do that later, go to Tainin to pay the widow. So I got a, you know, we didn't, we didn't check, we paid in cash. So I had a briefcase full of piaster. It was 117 piaster per dollar at the time. And that thing was loaded, you know, to pay 10, ten actually we came to about 10 widows, uh, one year each, like 10 years of salaries. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I left about 7 o'clock in the morning in Air America uh, airplane, one of those little single-engine planes that can land in, in 20 feet of uh, land. And I landed in Tainin uh, with my briefcase. My interpreter, who was there, uh, greeted me at the airport, you know, received a message I was coming. And he asked me what I was coming for. I told him I am coming to pay the widows. And he said, what widows? I said, I mean, you sent a message last night that we had 10 casualties. He said, no, no. We killed 10 Viet Cong. Uh. The guy who did deciphering somehow got a screw up, and he used the code for enemies for friendly and the code for friendly for enemies. Mm. It was the other way around. It was 10 Viet Cong killed and several PRU wounded, which I would not have to go there. So I stayed with them, had lunch, and I flew back to, to Benhua. When I got there, my boss told me, you are the luckiest man in the world. I said, why? I said, well, the helicopter came from the Army came at 9 o'clock in the morning to pick you up. You weren't here, so it took off. We understand he made a stop in Saigon to drop some soldiers. When he took off, he had an engine failure. He crashed, and everybody got killed and burned alive huh. inside the helicopter. I mean, you've had more than one experience like that. You talked about the one when you were 17 or 18 when you were supposed to go on a mission and got pulled off at the last yeah, minute. Yeah, that's when the Martin Perez yeah. spent 20 years in prison. The guy uh, who took my place was killed in Trinidad. Mm -hmm. And then in, in, in late 1970, Chuckley called me the head of a station to tell me not to fly into Miami, I mentioned you that, because there was a, 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 a Cuban intelligence officer defector in Paris who mentioned to them during the debriefing that the Cubans were um, 
preparing operation to hijack the plane with the Cuban involved in the assassination of Che Guevara. Mm -hmm. He had no idea who it was. I mean, he just overheard the conversation, and during the debriefing, he mentioned that. So, you know, people from Paris sent it to Washington. Washington knew that it was in Vietnam, so they sent it to Shackley. So Shackley asked me, that was Christmas time, 1970, he asked me not to fly into Miami directly because of this, uh, to fly anywhere else, take a train, rent a car, and they will pay for the difference. So I flew into Atlanta, I rented a car, I drove to Miami, we spent 24, with, you know, dinner with my family, uh, we spent uh, New Year's, and then we stayed until the 6th, which is the, the Reyes Mao, we call, you know, the Three Kings. And then on the 7th, I drove back to Atlanta, and have a cousin, we just still live there in Atlanta today. Uh, and, and she went to the airport to say goodbye to me. Uh, I had a flight who was supposed to go from Atlanta to Houston, Texas, Houston, Texas, San Francisco, where I had to wait like four hours over late. And then I found out there was another flight an hour later who stopped in Dallas and from Dallas to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And since I carried my own luggage, and at that time it was very easy to change plane, they didn't charge you anything, I took the second plane. So when I got to Vietnam, nobody was waiting for me. Normally, they send somebody to pick you up at uh, Tonsonut. So I took uh, one of these Lambretta uh, vehicles. I got took me to the Duke Hotel where I was staying. I changed. I got to the embassy. And everybody looked at me and said, what are you doing here? I said, I was supposed to arrive today. Nobody went to pick me up. And then they told me that my plane that I had, they had in record, was hijacked to Cuba. <laughs> wow. But at the time, there were a lot of hijacking. So it could yeah. have been a coincidence. Right. Felix's story will continue on part three of this SpyCast. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.